Let us pray. Almighty God, through your only Son, you overcame death and opened to us the light of eternity. Enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your Spirit, that we may hear your words of comfort and challenge in the reading of the Scriptures. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Our first reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. In this passage, Luke paints a vivid picture of the early church as a community which was uniquely powered by the Holy Spirit. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The word of our Lord. Chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out and put your hand in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. There's a pretty clear pattern in today's passage from the Gospel of John. A passage that really is two different accounts that are put together to reinforce this pattern. And the pattern, best I can tell, is this. The disciples locked themselves behind closed doors. Jesus finds a way to get in, regardless of their efforts to keep him and others out. And when Jesus does appear, he offers his followers what they need to be his disciples in the world. He gives them peace, presence, and a purpose. Twice the disciples are huddled behind locked doors, and twice Jesus breaks through their defenses to give them what they need to be his disciples in the world. Now the first time Jesus breaks through the doors, the doors, we are told, are locked out of fear, specifically fear of the Jewish leadership. Why are the disciples afraid of the Jews? Perhaps it's because they, the leaders, have the most to lose if the news of a resurrected rabbi, news that is quickly spreading, they have the most to lose if this is true. The authority of the Jewish leaders over the people would dissipate rather quickly if the people came to believe the stories of Jesus' return from the dead and the ones most likely to perpetuate this rumor to keep it going, to fuel the fire, are Christ's closest followers, his disciples, which puts the disciples right in the crosshairs of those most threatened by Jesus' return. And so the disciples are afraid. Who can blame them? They don't want to be crucified for their association with Jesus. Who does? Fear, not faith, is the first response the disciples have when they hear the good news of an empty tomb. Fear of those who have the most to lose if the story turns out to be true. Which makes me wonder on this first Sunday after Easter with the good news of an empty tomb still ringing in our ears, who or what is most threatened today by this good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Who's threatened today by a crucified and risen Lord? I have some ideas, they're just ideas. One group might be those who rely on hyper-partisanship for power and control. Those on the left and the right who claim they are right are certainly threatened by a savior who preaches a message of forgiveness for all people, not just for some. A savior who died labeled as an enemy of the state and a failure by his own people certainly upends any idea of winners and losers. Those who rely on false dichotomies for their power and their influence, whether in politics, on social media, or any other spectrum or sphere, those folks don't really like the idea of a crucified and risen Lord. And you know this, you live it every day, we all live it every day. If you try to seek to understand 
both sides of an issue, if you try to listen to those with whom you disagree and refuse to demonize them, you will incur the wrath of those who are certain they are on the side of truth. Christ died for all is a threatening idea for those who refuse to believe that it's true. Another group, I think, might be threatened by a resurrected Christ. It's a society more focused on punishment than rehabilitation. You want to get yourself uninvited to dinner parties, advocate for Jesus' message of universal forgiveness and unlimited second chances. Christ died for the forgiveness of all sin is a gut punch to the idea of punitive justice. People have a hard time with forgiveness. One final group we might want to fear if we fully claim our identity as disciples of the crucified and risen Lord are those who profess that the accumulation of wealth, of stuff, of resources is a basic human right and the best way to ensure our salvation. In a culture where accumulation is a sign of success, a savior who gives up everything and calls us to do the same is not all that appealing. You want to put yourself in conflict with other people, advocate for giving resources to the needy, or talk about the idea of sharing wealth, or try to make the argument that somebody really can have too much. In fact, just read the passage today from Acts at your next dinner party and watch the debate begin. The disciples were terrified of being associated with Jesus because he was a threat to those in power even before rumors of his resurrection. And make no mistake, we're not immune to this fear today. Living into our identity as followers of a risen and reigning Christ will put us at times in conflict with other people, and we actually don't like conflict all that much. It's no wonder the fear was the disciples' first response. Christ is risen is news, if true, that has the power to change everything. Now, if we do somehow manage to overcome our fear and leave that locked room, there's another obstacle we'll face in our attempt to be followers of the risen and reigning Christ. And that obstacle is doubt. In the second part of today's passage, we meet Thomas, who we know as Doubting Thomas, which is such an unfair moniker to give the guy. I think we should call him Thomas the Brave. After all, he was the only disciple not there behind the locked door the first time Jesus showed up, which means he was the only disciple courageous enough to leave the relative safety of the locked room and be a follower of Christ out in the world. Even without belief in the resurrection, Thomas was willing to die for Jesus. He wasn't afraid, but he had his doubts. The first church I served had a transitional community for the homeless in its basement. It was an amazing program in Denver that almost didn't happen. After the session voted to house 100 homeless men in the church basement, the church's properties committee, as you can imagine, was inundated with requests and concerns regarding the safety of the building and the parishioners. People requested the locks be updated, security cameras be installed, and a guard be hired for the church. Fortunately, before any of these things happened, something else 
happened. An elderly woman was leaving the church late one evening after a Bible study when two men attempted to steal her purse right on the front steps of the church. And within seconds, several men from the shelter had scared the muggers away, tracked them down, tended to the woman, and called the police. After that, there was no more talk about locks, security cameras, or extra security at the church. When I imagine the disciples huddled together out of fear in that room, I can't help but think of Plato's cave, the allegory presented by the Greek philosopher Plato in his Republic. The allegory is written as a dialogue between Plato's brother and his mentor, Socrates. In the allegory, Socrates describes a group of people who have lived chained in the wall of a cave all of their lives, facing a blank wall. To pass the time, the people watch shadows move, shadows projected on the wall. They're projected on the wall from objects passing in front of a fire that's right behind those chained. And the prisoners staring at the wall and the shadows give names to the shadows. The shadows are their reality even though they are not an accurate representation of the real world that's just behind them. Socrates explains how the philosopher is like a prisoner who is freed from the illusion of the cave when he comes to understand that the shadows are not real. There are higher levels of reality just outside the cave, and a philosopher is one who longs to understand and perceive these higher levels of reality, while the other inmates simply don't want to leave their prison, for they know no better life. Well, we have been freed from our chains. We know a shadow when we see it. We know what is possible with the risen and reigning Christ. We have seen and experienced and tasted a higher reality. Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. Love is one. We can leave the cave and stop believing the shadows are real. There is life beyond the prison of our doubt and our fear. This is true. And so is this. No matter how many doors we lock, no matter how much we struggle with doubt and fear, no matter how much we resist leaving our caves, leaving our rooms, Christ will come to us and offer us peace, his presence, and a purpose. Christ will come to us as many times as it takes to help us overcome our fear and relieve our doubts, to step through locked doors into the world God so loves and we are called to serve. Christ will come to us and gift us with his presence and strangely, by some miracle, that will be enough. Writer Anne Lamott tells a story of taking a vacation to Lake Tahoe with her two-year-old son, Sam. The area near Reno is a hotbed of gambling which means that all the rooms in the hotels have these really heavy, thick curtains that are meant to block out the sun. They're trying to get you to gamble all night and sleep all day. This is supposed to encourage tourists to spend more money. One afternoon, Anne puts her son Sam down for a nap in his crib. She closes the curtains, and she goes into the other room to work, pulling the door shut behind her. A few minutes later, she heard Sam calling to her. He had climbed out of his crib, and gotten to the door, but when he had grasped the handle of the door, he had depressed the button, the lock button, by accident. 
try as she might, Anne could not get him to unlock the door. When it became clear that his mother could not open the door, as you can imagine, Sam cried and screamed while his mother, in a panic, called the rental agency and left a message, then called the building manager and left another message. Finally, not knowing what else to do, Anne laid down next to the door, reached her fingers in the small space underneath it, and told Sam to reach down and find her fingers in the dark. He did. And as the reality of his mother's love and presence sunk in, Sam gradually calmed down. Mother and son stayed like that for a long time, lying on the floor side by side, a locked door between them, taking comfort in the touch of their fingers. Despite our best efforts, we will all find ourselves trapped behind doors, locked by our doubts and our fears. That's just part of the deal. Sometimes we will find ourselves there because we've chosen to be there, choosing what we know for what could be. Other times it will be because of choices others have made for us. The reasons really don't matter all that much. What matters is Christ will find us. Christ will pass through that locked door. He will pass through the fear and the doubt and give us his peace, his presence, and a purpose that will draw us out of our isolation into a larger world where we are equipped to be Christ's disciples, to be his ambassadors of hope, joy, love, forgiveness, and peace, even knowing that holding up these values will put us in conflict with other people. Remember, we don't need to fear anymore. Christ has risen, death has been defeated, love has won. And the world out there, the world beyond these walls, needs resurrection. The world out there needs people who believe in new life and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation. The world needs people who actually trust and live as if God is love and that God seeks each and every one of us, no matter how many barriers we put up in God's way. Remember, we don't find faith. Faith finds us. Alleluia and Amen.